0: Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Jake Wood, the founder and CEO of Groundswell. Jake is a former Marine who founded a nonprofit organization called Team Rubicon, which has over 100,000 volunteers located around the world. Jake stepped back from being Team Rubicon CEO in 2021 to start Groundswell, a company that is attempting to transform employee giving through the use of technology. My guess is that most people haven't thought deeply about the nuances of employee giving or are familiar with what are known as donor advisor funds. But when I had a chance to use the Groundswell product, I immediately wanted to have Jake on the podcast to discuss what he and his team are building. Specifically, we covered the founding story of Groundswell, donor advisor funds and some of the issues associated with legacy offerings, the idea of everyone having their own personal foundation, the ways in which Groundswell makes money, and what Jake hopes his business will look like in five years. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Groundswell CEO, Jake Wood. Jake, you've had such a diversity of experiences. I wasn't really sure where to even start this discussion, but on this podcast, we generally dive right into a discussion of a business or investment strategy. But what I'm interested in why you chose to join the Marines right after graduating from Wisconsin, where you played football during your four years there. Yeah, uh, not
1: not quite an investment decision, uh, unless I was investing in a a bad back and and sore hips for the rest of my life. yeah. I mean, I went to University of Wisconsin and uh, was in the business school, got a degree in in uh, real estate, urban economics, and, and political science. Um, kind of always thought I would go straight into the business world, maybe get into finance. Um, but, uh, you know, it was an interesting time period. I, I'd been in school uh, as a freshman on 9-11. And so my first four years of college were basically the first four years of the war on terror. And so when you know, the time came to graduate i just had to make this assessment was i ready to go sit at a desk and um you know start that part of my life uh or did i want to do something else and so i chose to join the marine corps uh you know tough decision
0: uh, led to a tough four years but wouldn't regret it for the world and my guess is you learn a lot about leadership being a marine in iraq and afghanistan that you certainly can't learn in a business context yeah you know, maybe you know for for most of our listeners who haven't had that experience what what do you learn about you know camaraderie and team team you know being a member of a team and leadership that it's just really hard to replicate within an office setting Yeah well I was I was really fortunate cuz I I'd spent 4 years at
1: Wisconsin on the you know varsity football team so I I already had a pretty great understanding of what it takes to be a good teammate and uh, you know, establish that esprit de corps and be accountable to, to my teammates and all that stuff. It, obviously, that accelerated dramatically during my time in the Marine Corps. Um, stakes were a lot higher. I was in Iraq during, you know, the surge. Uh, it was the bloodiest year of the war in Anbar province. And, you know, later in Afghanistan, uh, our unit took more casualties than I think any other Marine Corps battalion for the entire year. Um, certainly not a source of pride. I mean, I, I think um, it was just, they were tough tours. And so, uh, you do, you learn a lot about leadership. You learn a lot about, you know, what it takes to hold yourself accountable, hold your, your, uh, platoon mates accountable. Um, you learn a lot about, you know, what it takes to lead in moments of crisis. Um, you, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to distill all of those lessons down into any one soundbite. You know, the Marine Corps, uh, has an acronym for all of the leadership principles that, uh, it espouses and and the acronym is is almost a running joke it's it's jj did tie buckle it's now i'm gonna put myself on the spot see if i can rattle these off justice judgment determination integrity dependability uh uh tenacity initiative endurance bravery understanding courage knowledge loyalty and enthusiasm and uh and it's like, you know, that's that's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. Yeah. Um. But it, it's interesting because it, all of those things are true. They're all equally critical ingredients to leading yourself and leading others.
0: You know, I want to pull a little bit on that thread because accountability is something that I've thought deeply about, you know, especially in the business or investing context. Like, is, is, is there anything that you learned specifically about ca- accountability and like maybe the ability to have frank discussions with people or setting high expectations. I'd love to hear like, whether it's football, whether it's Marines, whether it's, you know, other things you've done, what, how have you thought about accountability as a, as an important element of any culture, um, in a business setting?
1: Yeah, I think one of the, one of the really great experiences I had was my, my first two years in the Marine Corps, I was in an infantry platoon and, um, you know, the Marine Corps infantry pretty highly regarded one of the finest, you know, fighting forces on the planet. Um, and I, you know, I was a, a non-commissioned officer as a corporal, which meant that I, you know, I had Marines under my charge and I was responsible for their daily welfare as well as their leadership in combat. Um, and you, you, you had to hold those Marines accountable. Um, and it's not that they were bad Marines, it's just that they were more junior and uh, perhaps less uh, proficient in their tasks. My last two years though, I was in a Marine Corps sniper team. And you know, if the Marine Corps infantry is well regarded, Marine Corps sniper teams are legendary. and it's a it's a very arduous process to try out for and be selected into a, a sniper platoon and then even harder to to get a spot and and eventually graduate from sniper school. And so these are probably the most proficient, mature, um and professional marines in the marine corps and so what was interesting was i really got this in experience where i was surrounded by people who had such a high degree of personal accountability that my need or even ability to hold others accountable almost atrophied because you never had to have a performance conversation in that platoon the moment that somebody screwed up you didn't have to raise the point. They knew that they had screwed up. They were holding themselves accountable, and they were going to fix themselves. And it was it was just this remarkably refreshing uh, experience. And I, I think I, I often reflect back on that because it's how I try to build, you know, teams today. It's how do I find people who are going to uh, have initiative, pursue self improvement, hold themselves accountable. Um, man if you can do that if you can build a density of that type of talent you can conquer anything
0: yeah and so you learned a lot about leadership and a number of experiences and and I'm interested in what prompted you to then write a couple books about leadership and your experiences like what 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 did, what did you think that was so important and special that you that you learned that that you thought that you it was worth sharing with the rest of the world well you know um I think a lot of people who
1: go to war, uh, they, they come home and they write books, right? And some of them are good, some of them are bad. I, I think for me, writing was something I'd always done uh, throughout my life. I, I was a fairly good writer in high school and in college. I, I could uh, articulate my thoughts pretty well. And so for me, writing was cathartic. I, I used writing to help process my experiences. It started when I was in Iraq, my first tour. Actually maintained a blog back when, kind of before blogs were a thing that everybody had, kind of like podcasts today, right? And um, so I started this blog, and it just became like really widely read, and it was just a really raw first person perspective of what was happening on the ground in Anbar Province during the surge. So that first got me thinking about it. And and again, for me, it was really an outlet and in in a way to help me process what I was experiencing, which was a lot of violence and death and all of that. Um, And then, you know, my, I got out of the Marine Corps and I had these, these kind of radical experiences right away. My, you know, we started the, this nonprofit team Rubicon about two months after getting home and it was just this really sensational uh, period where we were kind of, running around the globe, responding to crises. And, um, you know, I started to think, God, there's kind of an interesting narrative here. Maybe there's a book. And so, I don't know, to cut to the chase, that two or three years into running that nonprofit team Rubicon, I got approached by a publisher to write a book and they wanted me to write a book on leadership. And I said, I, I don't think I want to write a book on leadership. I, I think I'm a decent leader, but I'm an evolving leader. I don't have kind of a unified rational view of leadership. It's again, it's a work in progress. And so I said, do you want to, do you want to publish this memoir? Here's a, here's an outline. And they said, no, we want a leadership book. I said, all right, you're going to pay me. I'm going to write a leadership book. <laughs> um, and you know, in, in, in retrospect, I, part of me wishes I hadn't, I'd much rather write that book today than, than 10 years ago when it was published. Cause I actually think I, my, my views, perspectives, ideas, theories on leadership have evolved dramatically. Um. But then, uh, six or seven years later, back in 2020, you know, I I, I finally you know wrote and finished that memoir that I always wanted to write, it called Once a Warrior. Um, it was it did really well. It was a commercial success. It, you know, I still get notes from people from all around the country and around the world who read it and send me you know notes that talk about the impact it had on their life or their transition out of the military, and you know, that's those are the notes that. You know beyond getting paid to write like that's why you do it because if if your words can help anyone in their journey that's that's a really powerful thing
0: and you mentioned in that response the the situation and the circumstances that got you to think about starting team rubicon um you know just as we're going through your journey as a as a person as a leader i'd, I'd love for you to share um you know the the spark that led to the founding of the original founding of team rubicon
1: yeah, so for the listeners out there that are unfamiliar with the story, um, which is probably most of you, um, I got out of the Marine Corps in 2009. I, you know, I done time in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, um, you know, had this decision to make about whether I was going to stay in the military or if I was going to get out after my first enlistment, and you know, ultimately, I decided to get out. A lot of reasons for that, but about two months after getting out, I was waiting for application decisions to come back for. For grad school i was applying to go get my mba and as i was waiting in january of of 2010 so this is again about two months after i got out of the marines the earthquake uh an, an earthquake hit haiti and you know a lot of people may have forgotten how horrific that event was but you know they estimate about a hundred thousand people died instantly and another 100 to 150,000 people died in the coming weeks and months and so i sat there and watched that moment unfold freshly out of the Marine Corps and and just felt inspired to do what I could. And so ended up organizing a team of, of veterans and, and doctors. And we went down to Haiti, uh, the capital city of Port-au-Prince, you know, about four days after the earthquake. And we started running medical triage clinics all throughout the city, you know, helping. Uh, And it was, it was just this wild experience. I mean, we, we were on the ground uh, running and gunning, doing work that, know in parts of the city that other organizations just wouldn't even touch um helping people especially over the first two or three days that we were on the ground i mean these people that we were treating had horrific injuries i mean it was like a civil war battlefield every day it was one of the most um certainly one of the most powerful experiences of my life a horrific experience but powerful experience and at the conclusion of it we just we realized that you know the effectiveness of our team was really born of our experiences as military veterans and combat veterans specifically the ability to to navigate the chaos and uh, you know do rapid operational planning and risk mitigation and you know security assessments and all of that stuff. So we came back we we incorporated this thing as a nonprofit um, and you know really with. You know, I don't know that we had any grand ambition at the time. We just kind of wanted to to see where it would go, and I I ended up running that thing full time for eleven years. Um, and it still is is thriving today as a probably the the second largest uh, disaster response organization
0: in the country behind the Red Cross. Such an incredible story. So, what you know, one of the things we 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 always like to focus on this podcast is like passing on the reins and knowing when it's time to move on. What what was the what was the the, the what was the decision like to, to step away as CEO and, and, you know, think about what was next for you? Yeah. I think I'd always been thinking about stepping away since the
1: beginning. I, you know, I, I think that, um, every organization is, um, is either constantly evolving or it's slowly dying. It's just like any organism, right? So if you're not adapting as the world around you changes, then, um, you know, you're not going to be long for this world. And so I, I was always very, realistic with our stakeholders, whether they were donors or board members or volunteers that I'd run the organizations for as long as I was the right person to run the organization. And there were moments when I thought that that was going to be one year, two years, five years. There were moments at the five-year mark where I thought maybe I had 12 or 18 months left, and then I stuck around for another five years. Um, so I think I was always I was always very sober about the idea that you know, this isn't what I'm going to do forever, both because I don't think that would be good for the organization, but also because I have, you know, other things that I want to do. And part of that is I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I can't imagine um, running the same organization forever because at a certain point, you're no longer an entrepreneur, you're just a CEO. Mm -hmm. And so in 2021, well, actually it was at the end of 2020, I I had been doing it for 10 years. Um, The organization was in a great place. We had survived COVID. Um, and, uh, that was, you know, a very important moment to realize, okay, like, you know, we're not, not a lot. There were a lot of organizations that didn't survive and, uh, I had a great succession plan in place. My, my chief operating officer was fully ready to take the reins. And, um, I realized that, um, I was ready for the next thing. I wanted to be an entrepreneur again. I wanted to start from, go from zero to one, um, we were at a stage at Team Rubicon we weren't zero to one anymore we were one to a hundred and and there were parts of that that were really fun and exciting and challenging and there were parts of it that seemed kind of boring um Mm -hmm. and that's not to discredit anything that that organization is still doing today because they're having tremendous impact and I'm excited that I can stay involved as chairman of the board so it was just really the perfect opportunity
0: for me And of all the things that you could have done after Team Rubicon where did the idea for Groundswell come from and how did you know what, what was the spark that said, this is worth pursuing? Yeah. So I think one of the things that
1: had always caused me to hesitate leaving team, you know, not running team Rubicon was this idea that, you know, I wanted to make sure that the next thing that I did was as impactful, you know, had as much purpose. Um, but I wanted to do it as a for-profit. And so, you know, that kind of narrows the, range of possibilities down pretty substantially and um so when i finally made the decision to step down from team rubicon i didn't have what the next thing was going to be i just knew i needed to make the decision so as soon as i had the time and space i started to you know do some assessment about you know what what are the possibilities and Yeah, I kind of started with what do I know? Well, I've spent 11 years doing doing this thing. Um, What did I learn? And I learned a lot about disaster response. And there's actually tremendous business opportunities in in disaster response. I learned a lot about philanthropy. You know, we raised over $300 million while I was running Team Rubicon um, in in philanthropic contributions, that's a lot of money. And we raised it from, you know, grassroots donors, billionaire family offices, corporations and foundations. And I had a pretty pretty good grasp of all of that and so came up with this idea for groundswell uh, we ended up raising uh, venture money back in 2021 back when you could still raise VC money yeah. uh, led by Google ventures um, and the the thesis was you know how do we build tools that help democratize philanthropy and, and you know what's that mean to democratize philanthropy there's kind of two things one um, for decades, high net worth individuals have used really powerful vehicles for their giving, specifically the rise of donor advised funds, but they've been totally inaccessible to average people. And so, you know, we thought that with some of the advances in FinTech tools, that we could build the world's most modern donor advised fund and and make it more affordable and accessible to anybody so that they could give uh, to charity more efficiently from a tax perspective. Um, the second thing was, um, you know, I had raised a lot of money from companies and I knew that there's a ton of money that that is flowing to charitable causes through big corporate brands, big and small, not just big ones. And they're just really bad at giving away that money. Um, some of them better than others, but generally speaking, they're just pretty bad at it. And they're bad for a couple of reasons, but one of the ways in which they're bad is that they think that they're getting something for their philanthropy. They, and whether they admit it or not, they all want something in return for cutting these checks, right? They either want good PR, right? It's a corporate affairs effort where they want to create a halo effect in the community in which they're working, or they want to motivate and inspire employees. And they, they usually fall short on both, particularly in this, in the latter one, motivating and inspiring employees. And so you know, our kind of approach to democratizing philanthropy there was how do you build tools that actually empower employees to give that money away and this so that it's not a centralized decision, but rather a decentralized decision. And the result was we built this donor advised fund that companies give to employees as a a benefit and then give or match funds through them, um, effectively empowering those employees uh, to be the agents of that company's social impact mission.
0: and uh and we're excited about the prospects in my sense is that you were of the impression that there are aspects of the legacy donor advisor funds that have some limitations can you talk a little bit about the limitations maybe the expenses associated with those and then talk about how groundswells use technology to address some of those issues
1: yeah um you know legacy donor advised fund or or DAF providers, you know, they range from like the Fidelities and Charles Schwab's of the world to more, um, more of the, the the wealth management institutions like a Morgan Stanley or a you know a Goldman Sachs. And I mean, the the platforms themselves are just outdated. You know, it's 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 uh, their legacy platforms. These are typically kind of afterthought products for those companies. You know, Fidelity is not in the charitable giving business, despite having the largest donor advised fund in the world. They are a brokerage. Make no mistake about it. And so the tools that they're building for DAFs are really brokerages in disguise, which means a couple of things. One, they're not investing in those tools, but two, those tools are designed simply to accumulate more assets under management for the brokerage, which means that they're not actually facilitating effectively money moving to charity. It's not their economic incentive to do so. And so we felt like it was important for us to build a tool that was actually incentivizing people to move money to charity more effectively. Um, And we aligned our economic incentives to do that. But we also just wanted to build a more modern version of this. So it's a native mobile app, you know, it looks and feels like any modern FinTech app that users have on their phone that are doing their banking or their Venmo or, or any of that stuff. And um, I think the result has been you know a beautiful user-friendly app rated five stars on the app store anybody can go and create a donor advised fund in 60 seconds and uh and again that's just it's not been the case historically
0: and there's always a risk of course in any startup venture where you're going against some legacy incumbents um that they're they have the ability to to pivot to cater to people outside of the wealthiest individuals do you have a sense that they care or are set up that way or is that you know is that something that's not doesn't really worry you that one day fidelity is going to wake up and be like we need to modernize the staff platform because this is what we're really missing bring it on
1: i mean you know i competition's good it's good for the space it's good for us it keeps you know our edges sharp and uh you know i've never shied away from competition um could they conceivably crush us sure do i think that they will no I mean, it's the old speedboat versus aircraft carrier analogy, like, you know, yeah, they might have a desire to turn and innovate. Will they do it?
0: I don't know. And when you're speaking to potential customers, are the decision makers typically aware of the pain points associated with the ADAPT that is already in place? Or is there some education required, meaning like I'm a CFO or a head of finance somewhere and like we have one of these things at my firm but I'm, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Like, do you have to educate them be like, no, no, this is, it's expensive and 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 it's really hard to use or, or, or do people have a sense of, of the limitations?
1: You know, it's interesting. It, it really depends on the company and the buyer. So if we're selling to a large company, that's got like a formal corporate social responsibility team, those folks are pretty wise on donor advised funds. Um, but maybe they've never really thought about it as an employee benefit, right? That's that's entirely novel. So for for some CSR professionals, they encounter us for the first time, and they say, "Oh, that's really cool. I know rich people had these. I've never thought of them as a tool for our employee-driven philanthropy." Um, but if we're if we're selling into a company that the buyer is like human resources or you mentioned CFOs, yeah, it typically can. Um, throw some sand in the gears in the sale because it is, I mean, it's, it's, it becomes entirely consultative. They have no idea what the DAF is. And that can be an intimidating um, conversation for some folks. And so, you know, in full transparency, like we've had to adjust tactics based off of who we're having the conversation with. And there are some situations in which we don't even talk about DAFs. We just talk about, you know, Hey, we can match employee donations in the most elegant and effortless way possible. And by the way, that's a a great employee benefit to have that puts you on parity with some of the largest most well-known
0: companies in the US. And, and under the heading of democratizing charitable getting, giving, I'm interested in hearing about the idea of everyone having a personal foundation and how that is different from, you know, how you you feel people typically donate now. Like what is what is that it just seems like a really cool concept that that would be broadly applicable and interesting to people. What what is the idea of a personal foundation in your mind?
1: Yeah, i mean a donor advised fund for all intents and purposes is, is is like having a personal foundation right it is a tax advantage charitable giving vehicle uh, that has all the tax advantages of a personal foundation but none of the administration so there's there's a lot of advantages there's a reason why a lot of rich people use them um and you know we we really have tried to shift the way in people th- that people think about their philanthropy where, where as today it's often scattered or it's one-off um we want to make it more deliberate. We want people to be more strategic about it. We want folks to think about, how can I do this more efficiently? Am I getting all of the tax advantages of this generosity that I have? But we also want people to start thinking about legacy, right? I think that's something that people kind of flirt with when they're young. Some people are more deliberate about kind of planning their life around, um, less about their resume and more about their eulogy, if you've ever heard that example. Um, but, you know, we encounter people every day, every week that are thinking about, hey, how am I leaving the world a better place? And so being able to, to pull all of your, um, your efforts into a single giving vehicle allows you to start creating that legacy over time. And, you know, it, you know, sometimes it's the simple things, you know, you might be a runner that runs a 5K every year or a marathon every year and chooses a different charity uh to raise money for that's great there's a lot of people that do that but you know every every single year you're restarting that legacy you're going and you're raising money for the American Cancer Society over here you're using their giving tools and then the next year you're raising money for you know whatever the, the Alzheimer's Association and, and that history of year one to year two is disconnected and fragmented and instead you know we're building tools where you can say hey I'm 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 running uh this marathon i'm raising money into the the wood family foundation because the wood family cares about giving back and we're going to distribute those funds you know every year to a variety of causes not just one like the american cancer society but all the things that matter to us and and then the next year when i run again I'm, i'm still raising money into that wood family foundation and i'm starting to build this legacy over time of what we've accomplished in giving back
0: and I'm wondering, given how much you know consumer society has changed, and I think pe- people have become much more comfortable having a number of subscriptions, is that a is there are there nudges or are there ways in which you can start to get people to think of this as not a you know one-off but more like this is a recurring thing every year I give to the same charities? Like is that part of the technology to help people like, obviously they're thinking about a long-term legacy, but more even in the short run, just be more consistent with their giving?
1: Oh, I mean, absolutely, we, we try to nudge our users into recurring actions all the time. And, you know, so with this as a giving vehicle, you know, you can set up a payroll deduction directly into your giving account. You can do automated ACH uh, contributions into your, your giving account. And then of course you can set up a whole portfolio of nonprofits that you're supporting with donations on a monthly basis. It's all getting routed through this one single account. So it's consolidating all of your tax receding, the the transaction fees are much less you know there's a lot of people out there that have recurring donations to charity that they do online but they're paying four percent every single month on that on that amount right um you know because of the way we've built our technology you know our platform fees are one percent so even just consolidating all of those monthly gifts through their groundswell account is it's just more efficient
0: i mean it just seems like so obvious and such a such a home run for both, you know, it's just a win 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 across all the constituents. So maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about the typical profile of a firm, maybe in terms of size or industry that would be a good client for Groundswell. Do you think?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that we knew or I knew from my experience running a nonprofit is that Fortune 500 companies have been doing this type of stuff for a long time. There's three legacy players that they often use. Um, big. Kind of clunky platforms that facilitate this stuff not the donor advice fund element just the donation matching element we're entirely unique in the donor advice fund element um but those those existing platforms are so clunky they can't serve smaller firms so we saw really an opportunity to to open up the addressable market here by building a solution that could just as easily be used as a, at a 10 person company as a 10,000 person company. And so that and that's literally the range of our customers we've got we've got firms that are 10 people and we've got ten thousand person companies um, on the same platform with you know the same you know implementation burden so what we found though is we've got some niches where we do really well um investment management firms are one of them um you know these are tend to be smaller firms uh often the the managing partners have because they are well compensated these are highly you know compensated people they usually have a history of giving back, and you know, there's this. I think this emotional element of those managing partners thinking to themselves, like, "Hey, I can, I can turn my team into philanthropists as well. I can empower them to be as generous as I am, even if it's at a different scale, right?" And uh, so we have, I don't know, dozen, two dozen investment management firms ranging from you know 10 person shops to 250 person shops and we're about to work with a couple that are closer to a thousand person uh firms which is really exciting um generally speaking though where we see the most success is kind of professional service firms more broadly you know uh, accounting tax advisory types law firms uh IT services firms again people that generally more highly compensated high median education levels again because there are elements of the platform that you know the tax advantages and things like that that people really want to wrap their their minds around but um
0: you know any company that wants to be generous we can power it and one thing we talked about when you met when we met that i hadn't really thought about was a privacy angle but it makes a lot of sense can you talk about why that's important to groundswell and its customers the ability to give you know to a, any charity without the employer even knowing where the money went
1: yeah so if you think about what a traditional employee donation matching program looks like you know ben you work for a company that does this you donate to a a nonprofit. you got to submit that receipt to hr or to finance they've got to process it and they've got to send that matching check to the charity and and you know if you're supporting the local animal shelter who cares it's pretty benign but if you're supporting planned parenthood or you know whatever the conservative alternative to that is um those are very politicized polarizing issues and you may not be comfortable you know disclosing that internally you might you might know that the person you're submitting that receipt to is on the opposite side of that spectrum as you and that you don't want to create that you know that weird uh moment the other reason is for a lot of people their philanthropy is deeply personal it's informed by you know events that happened in their life you might be a recovered alcoholic supporting aa and you don't want hr to know that or you could have broken grown up in a broken home and You don't like talking about it but you support a battered women's shelter so you know the way our platform works is employees receive their eligible matches from their company into their giving account into their donor advised fund which then allows them to then distribute both their contribution and the match to charity however whenever they want without having to disclose where they're sending it so creating that that firewall that that level of privacy is really important to allowing employees to participate as authentically as they want without
0: fear of, you know, that exposure. And then once a customer signs on and gets the employees engaged, my guess is that there's virtually zero incentive to switch providers. Can you talk about just what you've seen in terms of switching costs and your sense of retention should look like as this business matures and scales and you, you know, kind of find the right types of businesses to work with?
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that, you know, I think that you are right, you should be right. What's interesting, though, is that we're seeing a lot of companies come to us looking to get off those legacy platforms. Um, You know, they are dissatisfied with the user experience, they're dissatisfied with the customer service, they're dissatisfied with the administrative burden that they thought they were getting rid of, they really just swapped one admin task for another. Um, And so I think, you know, despite these these platforms having deep hooks in these enterprise companies, those enterprise companies are saying enough's enough. So, you know, they are willing to switch, but it's because these legacy platforms aren't delivering on, you know, what they promise. So we're really focused, laser focused on building a world-class employee experience, having a human centric customer service model, um, ensuring that companies can report on the impact that they're having um, and, uh, you know, if we can do that, then I, I
0: I agree, we'll be pretty sticky. And I've used your tech and I found it very intuitive. It feels to me like there are other applications outside of maybe the corporate setting. So is there anywhere else, maybe even, you know, going back to your background in sports where you feel like groundswell can play? Yeah, it's
1: it's um, funny you mentioned that we're we are exploring some angles with with sports. We think that there's a real opportunity there. Athletes tend to want to give back uh, as they as they have success, and so you know I played with a lot of guys that went pro from Wisconsin, and a lot of them got deeply involved in the community. So one thesis that we have is that um, you know why not start those athletes on that journey in college? You know, there's some unique opportunities that have opened up with recent kind of deregulation of NCAA rules around name image likeness uh, or otherwise known as nil and so uh, just this week we announced a partnership with UCLA's quarterback chase Griffin you know he's raising money through uh, groundswell for the la uh, la food bank. Um, You know and we're having conversations with a number of professional teams as well, Um, how can you get fans and players and brands all aligned on a single platform uh tapping into those brands cause marketing budgets tapping into those fans desire to connect more closely with players and and then ultimately those players desire to have impact in the community um we see that as a an exciting nexus point
0: yeah it just feels like there's a lot of different applicable areas where you can play And so in terms of the business model and the financial profile, which we haven't really talked about yet, maybe let's start with the basic question, given all of that you just described and the benefits, like how does this company make money?
1: Yeah, well, we're a software company. We're a B2B SaaS company. We charge uh, other companies uh, for licensing fees for use of the platform. That's our primary revenue driver. Um, You know, I would say that we anticipate 85 to 90% of our revenue coming from those fees, we do take a, a transaction fee of money moving through the platform, 1%, which I mentioned, you know, historically, that's, you know, three to 4% less than uh, competitive uh, both platforms and or, and or online credit card donations. And obviously, we do then monetize assets under management. But for us, that is kind of a de minimis amount of revenue relative to the other streams. And kind of as I said earlier, you know we don't want that to be our economic incentive because frankly i don't think that does any good for the world
0: yeah and always like a business model that has some sus- subscription element plus some transactional element i mean that that sounds like a business that's going to scale really nicely how have we thought about the level of profitability uh, profitability a business like this can actually achieve i know you know you're in the earlier stages but what you know any analogs in, in the, that people might understand or know about that you think that they could point to and say this is this is kind of what we would hope to look like when we grow up. Um, we don't have anybody we're looking to look
1: like when we grow up. We're trying to blaze our own trail. But what I will say is, you know, I think that this can be if we look out three, four, five years. This is a very high margin company. Um, again, there's been some. Uh, Really incredible evolution in, in financial technology that allows us to do what we're doing um, relatively cheaply. Um, you know, we're not even close to being there yet. We're, you know, cash flow negative like most uh, venture-backed businesses. We've got to raise additional funding to, to even have a prayer at that profitability in the future. But there's certainly a pathway to it. I think that this is a
0: uh, a business that can be throwing off a lot of cash in the future got it and the name of this podcast is compounders so we also like to think about the ways in which a business can become more valuable over time whether it's the TAM or the first mover advantage you know how does groundswell become a lot more valuable in 10 years than it is today well that's uh that sounds like trade secrets um I but maybe talk about the market size right I think that would help people frame like what the opportunity is for you guys if you can execute yeah
1: well, as I said, that you know, the platforms that exist today—they all have billion-dollar-plus market caps, and they are limited almost entirely to enterprise customers, just because of the the way their tech is built. So I think you know, one, it's how do we capture that enterprise market share from them by delivering what their customers are hungry for? But then, how do we then attack down market from there, expand through mid-market companies and down into SMBs to dramatically expand the TAM? Uh, that's kind of the first thing. The second thing then is what are the kind of the second act products that we can, um, think about? So, you know, the, the nonprofit landscape is dramatically underserved. Um, you know, there aren't great tools for nonprofits out there and yet, you know, they do a $500 billion a year Mm -hmm. in revenue. So not, not insignificant. Um, we've got a long way to go in the amount of, of throughput that we're putting on our platform, but there's certainly a world in which you know, we're moving enough money to nonprofits that there are products we can build that serve them better to connect to Groundswell that we could monetize. There's other things that we're looking at um, as kind of second act peripheral products, but uh, that would probably be the most natural one and the least proprietary.
0: And a lot of the entrepreneurs I've talked to highlight the importance of focus, especially in the early days. How have you thought about focusing on just that core that you're that 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 you're targeting versus what you just mentioned, already starting to think about what the second act can be? How do you balance those things to make sure that you, that, that people on the team and even yourself don't get focused on something that is not, you know, maybe that's three years out versus, you know, something that we have to pay attention to this very moment as we're trying to scale it. I mean, you're right.
1: Focus is in the name of the game. Um, we we aim to be world-class in what we do. Um, you know, my team would probably laugh because I'm well-known for saying the words, we have to earn the right. Um, and so we can, you know, we can dream about expanding our product line into uh, platforms that support, you know, our nonprofit um, recipients of our the money we're moving. But like, we have to earn the right to build that. We haven't earned the right yet. So sure feel free to dream about it and
0: then get to work earning the right to do it yeah i like that and you already mentioned that the fundraising environment for startups has gotten more challenging how are you guys managing through that have you had to change your focus at all given the external environment or is it you know just kind of you have your marching orders and you're and you're you're following that and 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 understanding that there may need to be some more capital at some point Yeah. Well, we know we're going to
1: need some more capital at some point. Um, you know, we've been making moves to control burn and we ended up extending our seed round and raising an additional two and a half million dollars from existing, uh, well, about half from existing investors and another half from existing customers, which I think is a really powerful testament to what we've built. So we're well capitalized for our plan. Um, you know, we've got two years of cash, roughly speaking. And, uh, you know, obviously, the hope is that we both build, uh, you know, a, a company that's reaching the necessary milestones to justify our next round, but also that we're timing that raise in an environment that is much more friendly to Series A rounds than the current one is.
0: And another thing we often ask entrepreneurs um, in this podcast is built to last or built to sell right the idea a lot of founders are building things to sell versus you know something that you know they could you know run for a long time or like could continue you know within with the same management team for a while how how have you thought about that concept of of like and as you're thinking about building this thing into something much bigger is is there a difference between something that's built to sell versus built to kind of you know be around and last and be independent
1: oh absolutely absolutely and i think uh you know, I think built to sell companies are fairly transparent. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you want to get rich, quick product, like a lot of people make a lot of money doing that. Um, that's not really my mindset. I, I can't really imagine that I get very emotionally invested into the the things that I'm building. Um, you know, obviously, there's no build to sell uh, scenario for a nonprofit. So when I was running and building Team Rubicon. We, we always spoke about building an organization that was going to last 100 years. And, and there's something really powerful, I think, about that mentality. Um, I don't know what the future holds for Groundswell, but you know, our aspiration is that we build uh, kind of an industry-shaping company, and we have really no interest in getting gobbled up by one of the legacy players. Um, I think that off-ramp would be pretty easy to reach, but you know I, I don't think we want to settle for easy milestones.
0: Sure, and you mentioned some of the differences between running a nonprofit and a for-profit business. I would love to hear, having done both, like any any noticeable differences in terms of you know operations, leadership, dealing with people. You know what it's like to have outside invest you know outside investors versus raising money via via charitable contributions. Interested in just the differences in 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 your experiences as a nonprofit versus a for-profit CEO um listen it's really the same
1: to be honest I I think particularly in this environment right if money was still free I think it would maybe be a little bit different because you could be a lot more liberal with your spend and and count on the next round but I think in a in a a world in which there's a scarcity of money like that's, that's what a nonprofit is, you know, Every every day, every week, every year. And so in some ways, I think that experience suited me well for the environment that we're in, because you have to be a lot more judicious in how you grow, how you spend and how you invest. So, but listen, people are the same. The challenges are the same. Strategy is the same. You know, the books look a little bit different, but, um, you know, I, I, I feel as though running a nonprofit was some of the best training ground. I could have ever had as, a, as an entrepreneur because again it's a world in which resources
0: are scarce and i guess both both of your companies have a mission orientation but obviously team river is, you know out, like people are out there you know physically you know risking themselves to to be part of a mission have you found it a little more difficult to get people on board with the mission at groundswell or um you know is a charitable aspect uh you know, very appealing to, to people who want to work at Groundswell.
1: I think you know. Listen, I, the incentives are different. Obviously, there's no equity that you can give at at a nonprofit, and so you know, there are different levers that you can pull to attract and retain talent uh, at a company like Groundswell. But there's no doubt in my mind that this is a mission first company. The equity's nice; it's great. You know, hopefully, we can help people secure their financial futures um, with that, but. Um, the people that we have here are people that believe deeply in what we're doing and they want to be a part of a company, you know, an exciting technology company that isn't just building a platform to ship cat food faster to your front door, but rather like do something really meaningful in the world.
0: So, you know, you you talked a lot about people there. I'm interested in the cultural values that are most important to you as you're building groundswell. What what, what kind of, you, you talked about a huge number of acronyms from the Marines. Have you condensed that a little bit as you're, as you're building groundswell?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, we haven't yet defined fully our values. Um, you know, we're two and a half years into this. And I, I think it takes a while for that culture to really form and, 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 for you to really be able to distill it down into three, four, five value statements. And so we're not in a rush to do that. Of course, we focus on culture a lot. We talk about values, but you know, we don't have those, whatever you'd call them, the values that you hang up on the wall fully baked yet. Um, When I talk about three things that I I expect in everybody that works for me, the first one's initiative. You know, we've got too much to do for people to be sitting around waiting to be told what to do. Second one's tenacity. It's not worth starting something if you're not going to finish it, regardless of what information you have or resources you have. And then the last one's enthusiasm. There's, There's, you know, no use in having a ton of initiative, having enough, a ton of tenacity and being a total asshole. So, um, you know, be enthusiastic about the opportunity to come and work for this company every day and be the type of person that people are eager to see on Monday morning. And if you do those three things consistently for me, you're going to be successful and we're going to be successful.
0: And if we're having this discussion again in five years and Groundswell has been a success in your eyes, what would that look like?
1: Um, what would that look like? I mean, I think we're moving multiple billions of dollars a year to charity. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the idea of a tax advantage charitable giving account is becoming ubiquitous in certain industries as a part of their compensation package.
0: Got it. And is that, is there a way that groundswell can kind of push that initiative, right? Is there a, PR or, you know, some way to work with athletes or celebrities to get that idea out there. Is that, is that part of the mission? Hell yeah. It's part of the mission. What do you think I'm waking up every
1: day trying to do? If you've got some, if you've got some secret strategy, let me know. Otherwise,
0: you know, we're grinding, trying to make it a reality. Yeah. Nice. So uh, we're going to close this really interesting interview with um, the question that we always ask about companies is like, what do you think is the most underappreciated aspect of Groundswell?
1: Uh, great question. I think it would be the elegance of our solution specifically, you know, just this idea of using a donor advised fund as the the mechanism, the pipes through which a company can empower its employees to give like the, the, the tax advantages aside, it's allowed us to just build a more elegant experience for both employee and the administrators in those, in those companies. And, um, I think that's often lost on people um, when because they're thinking about the tax uh, implications, and really the tax implications are just kind of like a a nice to have relative to the the simplicity that we can afford people.
0: You know, I think there's been a lot of companies that have done really well just making a, a very difficult process more simple and being you know kind of customer first. So, um, you know, I, I use a product, I thought it was great, and I met you, and I thought that that you had you know, really, you know, the characteristics that that would make a, you know, a very interesting, you know, leader and, and founder CEO. So we're going to be watching your career very closely. Jake, thanks so much for being on Compounders. Yeah, thank you for
1: having me.